welcome to Prose for the Days. Thank you for joining me for the fourth installment of Shirley by Charlotte Bronte. If you're reading along, today's episode encompasses chapters 13 through 15. Do you have your tea? Today I have peppermint. Great, let's get started. Seemed to wield her such fullness of happiness that she did not need to lift a finger to increase the joy. Often, after an active morning, she would spend a sunny afternoon in lying stirless on the turf, at the foot of some tree of friendly umbrage. No society did she need but that of Caroline, and it sufficed if she were within call. No spectacle did she ask but that of the deep blue sky, and such cloudlets as sailed afar and aloft across its span. No sound but that of the bee's hum, the leaf's whisper. Her sole book in such hours was the dim chronicle of memory or the simple page of anticipation. From her young eyes fell in each volume a glorious light to read by. And are not you too mateless, Shirley? At heart, no. Oh, who nestles there, Shirley? But Shirley only laughed gaily at this question and alertly started up. I have dreamed, she said, a mere daydream, certainly bright, probably baseless. Chapter 13. Further Communications on Business. In Shirley's nature prevailed at times an easy indolence. There were periods when she took delight in perfect vacancy of hand and eye, moments in her thoughts, her simple existence, the fact of the world being around and heaven above her. Shirley's cheek was wet as if with dew, those fine eyes of hers shone humid and brimming. Shirley, why do you cry? asked Caroline, involuntarily laying stress on you. Miss Kildar smiled and turned her picturesque head towards the questioner. Because it pleases me mightily to cry, she said. My heart is both sad and glad. But why, you good, patient child, why do you not bear me company? I only weep tears, delightful and soon wiped away. You might weep gall if you choose. Why should I weep gall? Mateless, solitary bird, was the only answer. And it was these and the power of habit which still frequently drew her of an evening to the field style and the old thorn overlooking the hollow. One night, the night after the incident of the note, she had been at her usual post, watching for her beacon. Watching vainly, Miss Hellstone was by this time free enough from illusions. She took a sufficiently grave view of the future, and fancied she knew pretty well her own destiny, and that of some others were tending. Yet old associations retained their influence over her, and that evening a lamp was lit. Round her lips at moments played a smile which revealed glimpses of the tale or prophecy. It was not sad, not dark. Fate had been benign to the blissful dreamer, and promised to favor her yet again. In her past were sweet passages, in her future rosy hopes. Yet one day, when Caroline drew near to rouse her, thinking she had lain long enough, behold, as she looked down, she waited till the rising of certain constellations warned her of lateness and signed her away. In passing Fieldhead, on her return, its moonlight beauty attracted her glance, and stayed her step an instant. Tree and hall rose peaceful under the night sky in clear full orb. Pearly paleness gilded the building, mellow brown gloom bosomed it round, shadows of deep green brooded above its oak-wreathed roof. The broad pavement in front shone pale also, it gleamed as if some spell had transformed the dark granite to glistering parian. On the silvery space slept two sable shadows. These figures when first seen were motionless and mute. Presently they moved in harmonious step, and spoke low in harmonious key. Earnest was the gaze that scrutinized them as they emerged from behind the trunk of the cedar, thrown sharply defined from two human figures. They veil her neck and caress her shoulder with their tendril rings. An ornament of gold gleams through the half-closed folds of the scarf she has wrapped around her bust, and a large bright gem glitters on the white hand which confines it. Yes, that is Shirley. Her companion, then, is, of course, Mrs. Pryor. Yes, if Mrs. Pryor owns six feet of stature, and if she has changed her decent widow's weeds for masculine disguise, the figure walking at Miss Kildar's side is a man, a tall, young, stately man. It is her tenant, Robert Moore. The pair speak softly. Their words are not distinguishable. To remain a moment to gaze is not to be an eavesdropper, and as the moon shines so clearly and their countenances are so distinctly apparent, who can resist the attraction of such interests? Caroline, it seems, cannot, for she lingers. There was a time when, on summer nights, Moore had been wont to walk with his cousin, as he was now walking with the heiress. 
Often had she gone up the hollow with him after sunset to scent the freshness of the earth, where a growth of fragrant herbage carpeted a certain narrow terrace, edging a deep ravine, from whose rifted gloom was heard a sound like the spirit of the lonely watercourse moaning amongst its wet stones and between its weedy banks and under its dark bowers of alders. But I used to be closer to him, thought Caroline. He felt no obligation to treat me with homage, needed only kindness. He used to hold my hand. He does not touch hers. And yet Shirley is not proud where she loves. There is no haughtiness in her aspect now, only a little in her port. What is natural to and inseparable from her, what she retains in her most careless is in her most guarded moments. Robert must think, as I think, that he is at this instant looking down on a fine face. She has such generous yet soft fire in her eyes. She smiles. What makes her smile so sweet? I saw that Robert felt its beauty, and he must have felt it with his man's heart, not with my dim woman's perceptions. They look to me like two great happy spirits. Is it Mrs. Pryor and Shirley? Certainly it is Shirley. Who else has a shape so lithe and proud and graceful? And her face, too, is visible. Her countenance careless and pensive, and musing and mirthful, and mocking and tender. Not fearing the dew, she has not covered her head. Her curls are free. Yonder silvered pavement reminds me of that white shore we believe to be beyond the death flood. They have reached it. They walk there united. And what am I, standing here in shadow, shrinking into concealment, my mind darker than my hiding place? I am one of this world, no spirit, a poor doomed mortal who asks, in ignorance and hopelessness, wherefore she was born, to what end she lives, whose mind forever runs on the question, how she shall at last encounter, and by whom be sustained through death and he must think it with a man's brain, not with mine. This is the worst passage I have come to yet. Still, I was quite prepared for it. I gave Robert up and gave him up to Shirley the first day I heard she was come, the first moment I saw her, rich, youthful, and lovely. She has him now. He is her lover. She is his darling. And try what he can make of the discourse. I cannot conceive why nature did not give you a bulldog's head, for you have all a bulldog's tenacity, said Shirley. She will be far more his darling yet when they are married. The more Robert knows of Shirley, the more his soul will cleave to her. They will both be happy, and I do not grudge them their bliss, but I groan under my own misery. Some of my suffering is very acute. Truly, I ought not to have been born. Not a flattering idea. Am I so ignoble? And something also you have of the same animal's silent ways of going about its work. You give no warning. And the moonlight kissed the wall, which her shadow had dimmed. The reader is privileged to remain. You have witnessed no such feat on my part. In your presence I have been no bulldog. Your very silence indicates your race. How little you talk in general, yet how deeply you scheme. You are far-seeing. You are calculating. I know the ways of these people. I have gathered information of their intentions. My note last night informed you that bear close trial. You come noiselessly behind, cease fast, and hold on. This is guest work. They should have smothered me at the first cry. Here, Shirley stepping aside to gather a dewy flower, she and her companion turned into a path that lay near the gate. Some of their conversation became audible. Caroline would not stay to listen. She passed away noiselessly, and ended in his conviction and sentenced to transportation. His associates will plot vengeance. I shall lay my plan so as to counteract or at least be prepared for theirs, that is all. Having now given you as clear an explanation as I can, am I to understand that, for what I propose doing, I have your approbation? I shall stand by you so long as you remain on the defensive. Yes. Good. Without any aid, even opposed or disapproved by you, I believe I should have acted precisely as I now intend to act, but in another spirit. I now feel satisfied. On the whole, I relish the position. I dare say you do. That is evident. You relish the work which lies before you still better than you would relish the execution of a government order from army cloth. I will, if you like. Act as you please. Your judgment, Miss Kildar, will guide you accurately. I could rely on it myself in a more difficult crisis, but I should inform you Mr. Hellstone is somewhat prejudiced against me at present. I am aware. I have heard all about your differences. Depend upon it, they will melt away. He cannot resist the temptation of an alliance under present circumstances. I should be glad to have him. He is of true metal. I think so also. An old blade and rusted somewhat, but the edge and temper still excellent. Well, you shall have him, Mr. Moore. That is, if I can win him. Whom can you not win? Perhaps not the rector, but I will make the effort. Effort! He will yield for a word, a smile. By no means. It will cost me several cups of tea, some toast and cake, and an ample measure of remonstrances, expostulations, and persuasions. 
it grows rather chill. I perceive you shiver. Am I acting wrongly to detain you here? Yet it is so calm, I even feel it warm. And society such as yours is a pleasure to me so rare. If you were wrapped in a thicker shawl, I might stay longer and forget how late it is, which would chagrin Mrs. Pryor. I certainly feel it congenial. So would old Hellstone. It is true there is a shade of difference in your motives. Many shades, perhaps. Shall I speak to Mr. Hellstone? We keep early and regular hours at Fieldhead, Mr. Moore, and so, I am sure, does your sister at the cottage. Yes, but Hortons and I have an understanding the most convenient in the world, that we shall each do as we please. How do you please to do? Three nights in the week I sleep in the mill, but I require a little rest, and when it is moonlight mild, I often haunt the hollow till daybreak, pursued Miss Kildar. Things more perilous, he subjoined. Far more so. For instance, how would you like to meet Michael Hartley, that mad Calvinist and Jacobin weaver? They say he is addicted to poaching and often goes abroad at night with his gun. I have already had the luck to meet him. We held a long argument together one night. When I was a very little girl, Mr. Moore, my nurse used to tell me tales of fairies being seen in that hollow. That was before my father built the mill, when it was a perfectly solitary ravine. You would be falling under enchantment. I fear it is done, said Moore in a low voice. But there are worse things than fairies to be guarded against. A strange little incident it was. I liked it. Liked it? I admire your taste. Michael is not sane. Where did you meet him? In the deepest, shadiest spot in the glen, where the water runs low under brushwood. We sat down near that plank bridge. It was moonlight, but clouded and very windy. We had to talk. On politics? And religion. I think the moon was at the full, and Michael was as near crazed as possible. He uttered strange blasphemy in his antimonian fashion. Excuse me, but I think you must have been nearly as mad as he to sit listening to him. There is a wild interest in his ravings. The man would be half a poet if he were not wholly a maniac, and perhaps a prophet if he were not a profligate. He solemnly informed me that hell was foreordained by inevitable portion, that he read the mark of the beast on my brow, that I had been an outcast from the beginning. God's vengeance, he said, was preparing for me, and affirmed that in a vision of the night he had beheld the manner and the instrument of my doom. I wanted to know further, but he left me with these words, The end is not yet. Have you ever seen him since? About a month afterwards, in returning from market, I encountered him and Moses Bearclough, both in an advanced state of inebriation. They were praying in frantic sort at the roadside. They accosted me as Satan, bid me avaunt, and clamored to be delivered from temptation. Again, but a few days ago, Michael took the trouble of appearing at the counting house door, hatless, in his shirt sleeves, his coat and caster having been detained at the public house in pledge. He delivered himself of the comfortable message that he could wish Mr. Moore to set his house in order, as his soul was likely shortly to be required of him. Do you make light of these things? The poor man had been drinking for weeks, and was in a state bordering on delirium tremens. What then? He is the more likely to attempt the fulfillment of his own prophecies. It would not do to permit incidents of this sort to affect one's nerves. Mr. Moore, go home. So soon. Pass straight down the fields, not round by the lane and plantations. It is early yet. It is late. For my part, I am going in. Will you promise me not to wander in the hollow tonight? If you wish it. I do wish it. May I ask whether you consider life valueless? By no means. On the contrary. Of late, I regard my life as invaluable. Of late? Existence is neither aimless nor hopeless to me now, and it was both three months ago. I was then drowning, and rather wished the operation over. All at once a hand was stretched to me, such a delicate hand I scarcely dared trust it. Its strength, however, has rescued me from ruin. Are you really rescued? For the time. Your assistance has given me another chance. Live to make the best of it. Don't offer yourself as a target to Michael Hartley. And good night. Miss Helston was under a promise to spend the evening of the next day at Fieldhead. She kept her promise. Some gloomy hours had she spent in the interval. Most of the time had been passed shut up in her own apartment, only issuing from it indeed, to join her uncle at meals, and anticipated inquiries from Fanny by telling her that she was busy altering a dress and preferred sewing upstairs to avoid interruption. She did so. She plied her needle continuously, ceaselessly, but her brain worked faster than her fingers. Again, and more intensely than ever, she desired a fixed occupation, no matter how onerous, how irksome. Her uncle must be once more entreated, but first she would consult Mrs. Pryor. Her head labored to frame projects as diligently as her hands to plate and stitch the thin texture of the muslin summer dress spread on the little white couch at the foot of which she sat. 
Now and then, while thus doubly occupied, a tear would fill her eye and fall on her busy hands, but this sign of emotion was rare and quickly effaced. The sharp pang passed, the dimness cleared from her vision, she would rethread her needle, rearrange, tuck and trimming, and work on. Late in the afternoon, she dressed herself. She reached Fieldhead and appeared in the oak parlor just as tea was brought in. Shirley asked her why she came so late. "'Because I have been making my dress,' said she. "'These fine sunny days began to make me ashamed of my winter merino, so I have furbished up a lighter garment.' "'In which you look as I like to see you,' said Shirley. "'You are a ladylike little person, Caroline. Is she not, Mrs. Pryor?' Mrs. Pryor never paid compliments and seldom indulged in remarks, favorable or otherwise, on personal appearance. On the present occasion, she only swept Caroline's curls from her cheek as she took a seat near her, caressed the oval outline, and observed, "'You get somewhat thin, my love, and somewhat pale. Do you sleep well? Your eyes have a languid look.' And she gazed at her anxiously. "'I sometimes dream melancholy dreams,' answered Caroline. "'And if I lie awake for an hour or two in the night, I am continually thinking of the rectory as a dreary old place. You know it is very near the churchyard.' The back part of the house is extremely ancient, and it is said that the out-kitchens there were once enclosed in the churchyard, and that there are graves under them. I rather long to leave the rectory. My dear, you are surely not superstitious. No, Mrs. Pryor, but I think I grow what is called nervous. I see things under a darker aspect than I used to. I have fears I never used to have, not of ghosts, but of omens and disastrous events. And I have an inexpressible weight on my mind which I would give the world to shake off, and I cannot do it. Strange, cried Shirley. I never feel so. Mrs. Pryor said nothing. Fine weather, pleasant days, pleasant scenes are powerless to give me pleasure, continued Caroline. Calm evenings are not calm to me. Moonlight, which I used to think mild, now only looks mournful. Is this weakness of mine, Mrs. Pryor, or what is it? I cannot help it. I often struggle against it. I reason, but reason and effort make no difference. You should take more exercise, said Mrs. Pryor. Exercise? I exercise sufficiently. I exercise till I'm ready to drop. My dear, you should go from home. Mrs. Pryor, I should like to go from home. My dear, said Mrs. Pryor, you are very young to be a governess and not sufficiently robust. The duties a governess undertakes are often severe. And I believe I want severe duties to occupy me. Occupy you, cried Shirley. When are you idle? I never saw a more industrious girl than you. You are always at work. Come, she continued. Come and sit by my side and take some tea to refresh you. You don't care much for my friendship, then, that you wish to leave me. Indeed I do, Shirley, and I don't wish to leave you. I shall never find another friend so dear. At which words Miss Keeldar put her hand into Caroline's with an impulsively affectionate movement, which was well seconded by the expression of her face. But not on any purposeless excursion or visit. I wish to be a governess, as you have been. It would oblige me greatly if you would speak to my uncle on the subject. Nonsense, broke in Shirley. What an idea. Be a governess. Better be a slave at once. Where is the necessity of it? Why should you dream of such a painful step? I might make a more advantageous connection than herself. I should as soon think of exchanging an old-fashioned mother for something modish and stylish. As for you, why, I began to flatter myself we were thoroughly friends, that you liked Shirley almost as well as Shirley likes you, and she does not stint her regard. I do like Shirley. I like her more and more every day, but that does not make me strong or happy. And would it make you strong or happy to go and live as a dependent amongst utter strangers? It would not, and the experiment must not be tried. I tell you it would fail. It is not in your nature to bear the desolate life governesses generally lead. You would fall ill. I won't hear of it. And Miss Kildar paused, having uttered this prohibition very decidedly. Soon she recommenced, still looking somewhat corset. Why, it is my daily pleasure now to look out for the little cottage bonnet and the silk scarf glancing through the trees in the lane, and to know that my quiet, true, thoughtful companion, she thought she should be able to find perhaps a harsh but ineffectual cure for her sufferings. But this judgment, founded on circumstances she could fully explain to none, least of all to Shirley, seemed, in all eyes but her own, incomprehensible and fantastic, and was opposed accordingly. And Monitress is coming back to me, that I shall have her sitting in the room to look at, to talk to, or to let alone, as she and I please. This may be a selfish sort of language, I know it is, but it is a language which naturally rises to my lips, therefore I utter it. I would write to you, Shirley. And what are letters? Only a sort of pialet, 
Drink some tea, Caroline. Eat something. You eat nothing. Laugh and be cheerful and stay at home. Miss Hellstone shook her head and laughed. She felt what difficulty she would have to persuade anyone to assist or sanction her in making that change in her life which she believed desirable. Might she only follow her own judgment? Now, is your mind quieted? inquired Shirley. Will you consent to stay at home? I shall not leave it against the approbation of my friends, was the reply, but I think in time they will be obliged to think as I do. During this conversation, Mrs. Pryor looked far from easy. Her extreme habitual reserve would rarely permit her to talk freely or to interrogate others closely, or in a straight less afflictive. There really was no present pecuniary need for her to leave a comfortable home and take a situation, and there was every probability that her uncle might, in some way, permanently provide for her. So her friends thought, and, as far as their lights enabled them to see, they reasoned correctly. But of Caroline's strange sufferings, which she desired so eagerly to overcome or escape, they had no idea. Of her racked nights and dismal days, no suspicion. It was at once impossible and hopeless to explain. To wait and endure was her only plan. Many that want food and clothing have cheerier lives and brighter prospects than she had. Many, harassed by poverty, are... She could think of a multitude of questions she never ventured to put, give advice in her mind which her tongue never delivered. Had she been alone with Caroline, she might possibly have said something to the point. Miss Kildar's presence, accustomed as she was to it, sealed her lips. If you think so, you had better make much of me, she said, and not run away from me. I hate to part with those to whom I am become attached. Mrs. Pryor there sometimes talks of leaving me, and says in an indirect way, by asking her if the fire made her too warm, placing a screen between her chair and the hearth, closing a window once she imagined a drought proceeded, and often in restlessly glancing at her. Shirley resumed. Having destroyed your plan, now, as on a thousand other occasions, inexplicable nervous scruples kept her back from interfering. She merely showed her concern for Miss Halstone at the Scotch Locks or the English Lakes. That is, I shall go there provided you consent to accompany me. If you refuse, I shall not stir a foot. You are very good, Shirley. I would be very good if you would let me. I have every disposition to be good. It is my misfortune and habit, I know, to think of myself paramount to anybody else. But who is not like me in that respect? Which I hope I have done. I shall construct a new one of my own. Every summer I make an excursion. This season I propose spending two months either but gloriously reviving. Shirley rubbed her hands. Come, I can bestow a benefit, she exclaimed. I can do a good deed with my cash. My thousand a year is not merely a matter of dirty banknotes. However, when Captain Kildar is made comfortable, accommodated with all he wants, including a sensible, genial comrade, it gives him a thorough pleasure to devote his spare efforts to make that comrade happy. And should we not be happy, Caroline, in the Highlands? We will go to the Highlands. We will, if you can bear a sea voyage. Go to the Isles. The Shetland? The Orkney Islands? Would you not like that? I see you would. Mrs. Pryor, I call you to witness. Her face is all sunshine at the bare mention of it. I should like it much, returned Caroline, to whom, indeed, the notion of such a tour was not only pleasant and jaundiced guineas. Let me speak respectfully of both, though, for I adore them. But it may be, health to the drooping, strength to the weak, consolation to the sad. I was determined to make something of it better than a fine old house to live in, than satin gowns to wear, and doubtless mermaids in Stromo. Caroline is laughing, Mrs. Pryor. I made her laugh. I have done her good. I shall like to go, Shirley, again said Miss Halstone. I long to hear the sound of waves, ocean waves, and to see them as I have imagined them in dreams like tossing banks of green light, strode with vanishing and reappearing wreaths of foam, whiter than lilies. I shall delight to pass the shores of those lone rock islets where the seabirds live and breed unmolested. We shall be on the track of the old Scandinavians, of the Norsemen. We shall almost see the shores of Norway. This is a very vague delight that I feel, communicated by your proposal, but it is a delight. And instead of musing about remnants of shrouds and fragments of coffins, will you think a fitful head now when you lie awake at night, of gulls shrieking round it, and human bones and mold, I will fancy seals lying in the sunshine on solitary stones, where neither fisherman nor hunter ever come, of rock crevices full of pearly eggs bedded in seaweed, of unscared birds covering white sands and happy flocks, and waves tumbling in upon it rather than of the graves under the rectory back kitchen. I will try. And what will become of that inexpressible weight you said you had on your mind? I will try to forget it in speculation on the sway of the whole great deep above a herd of whales rushing through the livid and liquid thunder down from the frozen zone, a hundred of them perhaps, wallowing, flashing, better than deference from acquaintance and homage from the poor. 
Here's to begin. This summer, Caroline, Mrs. Pryor, and I go out into the North Atlantic, beyond the Shetland, perhaps, to the Faroe Isles. We will see seals in Sudero, rolling in the wake of a patriarch bull, huge enough to have been spawned before the flood, such a creature as poor Smart had it in his mind when he said, Strong against tides, the enormous whale emerges as he goes. I hope our bark will meet with no such shoal devouring strange provender in the vast valleys through and above which sea billows roll. I should not like to be capsized by the patriarch bull. I suppose you expect to see mermaids, surely? One of them, at any rate. I do not bargain for less, and she is to appear in some such fashion as this. I am walking by myself on deck, rather late of an August evening, or heard as you term it, Caroline. I suppose you fancy the sea mammoths pasturing about the faces of the everlasting hills, watching and being watched by a full harvest moon. Something is to rise white on the surface of the sea, over which the moon mounts silent and hangs glorious. The object glitters and sinks. It rises again. I think I hear it cry with an articulate voice. I call you up from the cabin. I shoot an image, fair as alabaster, emerging from the dim wave. We both see the long hair. The lifted and foam-white arm, the oval mirror brilliant as a star, it glides nearer. A human face is plainly visible. A face in the style of yours, whose straight, pure, excuse the word, it is appropriate, whose straight, pure lineaments, paleness does not disfigure. It looks at us, but not with your eyes. I see a preternatural lure in its wily glance. It beckons. Were we men, we should spring at the sign. The cold billow would be dared for the sake of the colder enchantress. Being women, we stand safe, though not dreadless. She comprehends our unmoved gaze. She feels herself powerless. Anger crosses her front. She cannot charm, but she will appall us. She rises high and glides, all revealed, Is there, ma'am? On the dark wave ridge. Temptress terror, monstrous likeness of ourselves. Are you not glad, Caroline, when at last, and with a wild shriek, she dives? But surely she is not like us. We are neither temptresses, nor terrors, nor monsters. Some of our kind decide are all three. There are men who ascribe to woman in general such attributes. My dears, here interrupted Mrs. Pryor, does it not strike you that your conversation for the last ten minutes has been rather fanciful? But there is no harm in our fancies. We are aware that mermaids do not exist. Why speak of them as if they did? How can you find interest? I heard a step in the lane while you were talking. And is not that the garden gate which creaks? Shirley stepped to the window. Yes, there is someone, said she, turning quietly away. And as she resumed her seat, a sensitive flush animated her face, while the trembling ray at once kindled and softened her eye. She raised her hand to her chin, cast her gaze down, and seemed to think as she waited. The servant announced Mr. Moore, and Shirley turned round when Mr. Moore appeared at the door. His figure seemed very tall as he entered, and stood in contrast with the three ladies, none of whom could boast a stature much beyond the average. He was looking well, better than he had been known to look for the past twelve months. It looked as cheerful as it was earnest. "'I am just returned from Stillbrow,' he said to Miss Kildar, as he greeted her, "'and I thought I would call to impart to you the result of my mission.' "'You did right not to keep me in suspense,' she said, "'and your visit is well-timed. Sit down.' A sort of renewed youth glowed in his eye and color, and an invigorated hope and settled purpose sustained his bearing. Firmness his countenance still indicated, but not austerity." in speaking of a non-entity. I don't know, said Shirley. My dear, I think there is an arrival. We have not finished tea. Are you English enough to relish tea, or do you faithfully adhere to coffee? Moore accepted tea. I am learning to be a naturalized Englishman. And now he paid his respects to Mrs. Pryor, and paid them well, with a grave modesty that became his age compared with hers. Then he looked at Caroline. Not, however, for the first time, said he. My foreign habits are leaving me one by one. He bent towards her as she sat, gave her his hand, and asked her how she was. The light from the window did not fall upon Miss Hellstone. His glance had fallen upon her before. Her back was turned towards it. A quiet, though rather low reply, a still demeanor, and the friendly protection of early twilight kept out of view each traitorous symptom. None could affirm that she had trembled or blushed, that her heart had quaked or her nerves thrilled. None could prove emotion. A greeting showing less effusion was never interchanged. Moore took the empty chair near her, opposite Miss Kildar. He had placed himself well. His neighbor, screened by the very closeness of his vicinage from his scrutiny, and sheltered further by the dusk which deepened each moment, soon regained not merely seeming but real mastery of the feelings which had started into insurrection at the first announcement of his name. He addressed his conversation to Miss Kildar. I went to the barracks, he said, and had an interview with Colonel Ride. He approved my plan and promised the aid I wanted. Indeed, he offered a more numerous force than I require. 
Half a dozen will suffice. I don't intend to be swamped by redcoats. They are needed for appearance rather than anything else. My main reliance is on my own civilians. And on their captain, interposed Shirley. What, Captain Kildar? inquired Moore, slightly smiling and not lifting his eyes. The tone of raillery in which he said this was very respectful and suppressed. No, returned Shirley, answering the smile. Captain Gerard Moore, who trusts much to the prowess of his own right arm, I believe. Furnished with his counting house ruler, added Moore. Resuming his usual gravity, he went on. I received by the evening's post a note from the Home Secretary in answer to mine. It appears they are uneasy at the state of matters here in the North. They especially condemn the supineness and the pusillanimity of the mill owners. They say, as I have always said, that inaction under present circumstances is criminal, and that cowardice is cruelty, since both can only encourage disorder and lead finally to sanguinary outbreaks. There is the note. I brought it for your perusal, and there is a batch of newspapers containing further accounts of proceedings in Nottingham, Manchester, and elsewhere. When lifted naturally met first, and as what remained of daylight, the gilding of the west, the dusk yet delicate line of her eyebrows, the almost sable gloss of her curls, made her heightened complexion look fine as was upon her, her shape rose in relief from the dark paneling behind. Shirley's clear cheek was tinted yet with the color which had risen into it a few minutes since. The dark lashes of her eyes looked down as she read, bloom of a red wildflower by contrast. There was natural grace in her attitude, and there was artistic effort in the ample and shining folds of her silk dress. An attire simply fashioned, but almost splendid from the shifting brightness of its dye, warp, and woof being of tense deep and changing as the hue of a pheasant's neck. He produced letters and journals and laid them before Miss Kildar. While she perused them, he took his tea quietly, but though his tongue was still, his observant faculties seemed by no means off-duty. Mrs. Pryor, sitting in the background, did not come within the range of his glance, but the two younger ladies had the full benefit thereof. Miss Kildar, placed directly opposite, was seen without effort. She was the object of his eyes. A glancing bracelet on her arm produced the contrast of gold and ivory. There was something brilliant in the whole picture. It is to be supposed that Moore thought so. Her attire, the modest muslin dress, colorless but for its narrow stripe of pale azure, her complexion unflushed, unexcited, the very brownness of her hair and eyes invisible by the faint light. She was, compared with the heiress, as his eye dwelt long on it, but he seldom permitted his feelings or his opinions to exhibit themselves in his face. His temperament boasted a certain amount of phlegm, and he preferred an undemonstrative, not ungentle, but serious aspect to any other. He could not, by looking straight before him, see Caroline, as she was close to his side. It was necessary, therefore, to maneuver a little to get her well within the range of his observation. He leaned back in his chair and looked down on her. In Miss Hellstone, neither he nor anyone else could discover brilliancy. Sitting in the shade, without flowers or ornaments, as a graceful pencil sketch compared with a vivid painting. Since Robert had seen her last, a great change had been wrought in her. Whether he perceived it might not be ascertained. He said nothing to that effect. How is Hortense? asked Caroline softly. Very well, but she complains of being unemployed. She misses you. Tell her that I miss her, and that I write and read a portion of French every day, and must, therefore, be delivered punctually. If you please. Hortense will be ready to shed tears. She is tender-hearted on the subject of her pupil, yet she reproaches you sometimes for obeying your uncle's injunctions too literally. Affection, like love, will be unjust now and then. And Caroline made no answer to this observation, for indeed her heart was troubled, and to her eyes she would have raised her handkerchief as she had dared. If she had dared, too, she would have declared how the very flowers in the garden of Hollow's Cottage were dear to her, how the little parlor of that house was her earthly paradise, how she longed to return to it, as much almost as the first woman in her exile must have longed to revisit Eden. Not daring, however, to say these things, she held her peace. She sat quiet at Robert's side, waiting for him to say something more. It was long since this proximity had been hers. Long since his voice had addressed her. Could she? She will ask if you sent your love. She is always particular on that point. You know she likes attention. My best love, my very best, and say to her that whenever she has time to write me a little note, I shall be glad to hear from her. What if I forget? I am not the surest messenger of compliments. No, don't forget, Robert. It is not compliment. It is in good earnest. He continued the conversation standing before her. From the tenor of what he said, it appeared evident that they both apprehended disturbances in the neighborhood of Briarfield, though in what form they expected them to break out was not specified. Neither Caroline nor Mrs. Pryor asked questions. The subject did not appear to be regarded as one ripe for free discussion. Therefore, the lady and her tenant were suffered to keep details to themselves, unimportuned by the curiosity of their listeners. Rendered the expression of her countenance legible, you could see that she was all interest, life, and earnestness. 
There was nothing coquettish in her demeanor. Whatever she felt for more, she felt it seriously. And serious, too, were his feelings, and settled were his views, apparently, for he made no petty effort. Miss Kildar, in speaking to Mr. Moore, took a tone at once animated and dignified, confidential and self-respecting. When, however, the candles were brought in, and the fire was stirred up, and the fullness of light thus produced, with any show of probability, even a possibility, have imagined that the meeting gave him pleasure, to her it would have given deep bliss. Yet, even in doubt that it pleased, in dread that it might annoy him, she received the boon of the meeting as an imprisoned bird would the admission of sunshine to its cage. It was of no use arguing, contending against the sense of present happiness, to be near Robert was to be revived. Miss Kildar laid down the papers. And are you glad or sad for all these menacing tidings? She inquired of her tenant. Not precisely either, but I certainly am instructed. I see that our only plan is to be firm. I see that efficient preparation and resolute attitude are the best means of averting bloodshed. He then inquired if she had observed some particular paragraph, to which she replied in the negative, and he rose to show it to her, to attract, dazzle, or impress. He contrived, notwithstanding, to command a little, because the deeper voice, however mildly modulated, the somewhat harder mind, now and then, though involuntarily and unintentionally, bore down by some peremptory phrase or tone the mellow accents and susceptible, if high, nature of Shirley. Miss Kildar looked happy in conversing with him, and her joy seemed twofold, a joy of the past and present, a memory and of hope. What I have just said are Caroline's ideas of the pair. She felt what has just been described. In thus feeling, she tried not to suffer, but suffered sharply nevertheless. She suffered indeed miserably. A few minutes before her famished heart had tasted a drop and crumb of nourishment that, if freely given, would have brought back abundance of life where life was failing. But the generous feast was snatched from her, spread before another, and she remained but a bystander at the banquet. The clock struck nine. It was Caroline's time for going home. She gathered up her work, put the embroidery, the scissors, thimble into her bag. She bade Mrs. Pryor a quiet good night, receiving from that lady a warmer pressure of the hand than usual. She stepped up to Miss Kildar. Good night, Shirley. Shirley started up. What? So soon? Are you going already? It is past nine. I never heard the clock. You will come again tomorrow, and you will be happy tonight, will you not? Remember our plans? Yes, said Caroline. I have not forgotten. Her mind misgave her that neither those plans nor any other could permanently restore her mental tranquility. She turned to Robert, who stood close behind her. As he looked up, the light of the candles on the mantelpiece fell full on her face. All its paleness, all its change, all its forlorn meaning were clearly revealed. Robert had good eyes, and might have seen it if he would. Whether he did see it, nothing indicated. Good night, she said, shaking like a leaf, offering her thin hand hastily, anxious to part from him quickly. He told her to put on her bonnet and shawl. She was quickly ready, and they were soon both in the open air. Moore drew her hand under his arm, just in his old manner, and said he was glad to find she was a familiar guest at Fieldhead. He hoped her intimacy with Miss Kildar would continue. Such society should be both pleasant and improving. Caroline replied that she liked Shirley. And there is no doubt the liking is mutual, said Moore. You're going home, he asked, not touching her hand. Yes. Is Fanny come for you? Yes. I may as well accompany you a step of the way. Not up to the rectory, though, lest my old friend Hailstone should shoot me from the window. He laughed and took his hat. Caroline spoke of unnecessary trouble, and when the girl had got a little in advance, he enclosed Caroline's hand in his, that manner which she ever felt to be so kind. You may run on, Fanny, he said to the housemaid. We shall overtake you. Be certain, she is sincere. She cannot feign. She scorns hypocrisy. And Caroline, are we never to see you at Hollow's Cottage again? I suppose not, unless my uncle should change his mind. Are you much alone now? Yes, a good deal. I have little pleasure in any society but Miss Kildar's. Have you been quite well lately? Quite. You must take care of yourself. Be sure not to neglect exercise. Do you know I fancied you somewhat altered, a little fallen away and pale? Is your uncle kind to you? Yes, he is just as he always is. Not too tender, that is to say. Not too protective and attentive. And what ails you then? Tell me, Lena. Nothing, Robert. But her voice faltered. That is to say, if she professes friendship, nothing that you will tell me. I am not to be taken into confidence. Separation is then quite to estrange us, is it? I do not know. Sometimes I almost fear it is. But it ought not to have that effect. Should all acquaintance be forgot and days of lang sin? Robert, I don't forget. It is two months, I should think, Caroline, since you were at the cottage. Since I was within it, yes. Have you ever passed that way in your walk? 
I've come to the top of the field sometimes of an evening and looked down. Once I saw her taunts in the garden watering her flowers, and I know at what time you light your lamp in the counting house. I've waited for it to shine out now and then, and the scene you bent between it and the window. I knew it was you. I could almost trace the outline of your form. I wonder I never encountered you. I occasionally walked to the top of the hollow's fields after sunset. I know you do. I had almost spoken to you one night. You passed so near me. Did I? I passed near you, and I did not see you. Was I alone? I saw you twice, and neither time were you alone. Who was my companion? Probably nothing but Joe Scott, or my own shadow by moonlight. No, neither Joe Scott nor your shadow, Robert. The first time you were with Mr. York, and the second time what you call your shadow was a shape with a white forehead and dark curls, and a sparkling necklace round its neck. But I only just got a glimpse of you in that fairy shadow. I did not wait to hear you converse. It appears you walk invisible. I noticed a ring on your hand this evening. Can it be the ring of gigs? Reading with me from the same book, or sitting at my side, engaged in her own particular task, and now and then raising her unseen eyes to my face to read there my thoughts. I only stand afar off, watching what may become of you. When I walk out along the hedgerows in the evening after the mill is shut, or at night when I take the watchman's place, I shall fancy the flutter of every little bird over its nest, the rustle of every leaf, a movement made by you. Tree shadows will take your shape. In the white sprays of hawthorn I shall imagine glimpses of you. Lena, you will haunt me. I will never be where you would not wish me to be. Henceforth, when sitting in the counting house by myself, perhaps at dead of night, I shall permit myself to imagine that Caroline may be leaning over my shoulder, or of dazzling sunbeam, I walked up to this group. What I sought had glided away, nor see nor hear what you would wish unseen and unheard. I shall see you in my very mill in broad daylight. Indeed, I have seen you there once, but a week ago I was standing at the top of one of my long rooms. Girls were working at the other end, and amongst half a dozen of them moving to and fro, I seemed to see a figure resembling yours. It was some effect of doubtful light or shade. You need fear no such infliction. I do not come near you. I found myself between two bucks and lasses and pinafores. I shall not follow you into your mill, Robert, unless you call me there. Nor is that the only occasion on which imagination has played me a trick. One night, when I came home late from market, I walked into the cottage parlor, thinking to find Hortense, but instead of her, I thought I found you. There was no candle in the room. My sister had taken the light upstairs with her. The window blind was not drawn, and broad moonbeams poured through the panes. There you were, Lena, at the casement, shrinking a little to one side in attitude, thick transit, etc. It was not my wrath, then. I almost thought it was. The drapery of the dress changed outlines. The tints of the complexion dissolved and were formless. Positively, as I reached the spot, there was nothing left but the sweep of a white muslin curtain and a balsam plant in a flower pot covered with a flush of bloom. Not unusual with you. You were dressed in white, as I have seen you dressed at an evening party. For half a second, your fresh, living face seemed turned towards me, looking at me. For half a second, my idea was to go and take your hand, to chide you for your long absence, and welcome your present visit. Two steps forward broke the spell. No, only gauze, crockery, and pink blossom, a sample of earthly illusions. I wonder you have time for such illusions, occupied as your mind must be. So do I, but I find in myself, Lena, two natures, one for the world and business, and one for home and leisure. Gerard Moore is a hard dog, brought up to mill and market. The person you call your cousin Robert is sometimes a dreamer, who lives elsewhere than in Cloth Hall and Counting House. Your two natures agree with you. I think you are looking in good spirits and health. You have quite lost that harassed air which it often pained one to see in your face a few months ago. Do you observe that? Certainly I am disentangled of some difficulties. I have got clear of some shoals, and have more sea room. And, with a fair wind, you may now hope to make a prosperous voyage. I may hope it, yes, but hope is deceptive. There is no control in wind or wave. Gusts and swales perpetually trouble the mariner's course. He dare not dismiss from his mind the expectation of tempest. But you are ready for a breeze. You are a good seaman, an able commander. You are a skillful pilot, Robert. You will weather the storm. My kinswoman always thinks the best of me, but I will take her words for a propitious omen. I will consider that in meeting her tonight I have met with one of those birds whose appearance is to the sailor the harbinger of good luck. A poor harbinger of good luck is she who can do nothing, who has no power. I feel my incapacity. It is of no use saying I have the will to serve you and I cannot prove it. Yet I have that will. I wish you success. I wish you high fortune and true happiness. When did you ever wish me anything else? What is Fanny waiting for? I told her to walk on. Oh, we have reached the churchyard. Then we are to part here, I suppose. We might have sat a few minutes in the church porch if the girl had not been with us. It is so fine a night, so summer mild and still. I have no particular wish to return yet to the hollow. 
but we cannot sit in the porch now, Robert. Caroline said this because Moore was turning around towards it. Perhaps not, but tell Fanny to go in. Say we are coming. A few minutes will make no difference. The church clock struck ten. My uncle will be coming out to take his usual sentinel route, and he always surveys the church and churchyard. And if he does, if it were not for Fanny, who knows we are here? I should find pleasure in dodging and eluding him. We could be under the east window when he is at the porch. As he came round to the north side, we could wheel off to the south. We might at a pinch hide behind some of the monuments. That tall erection of the winds would screen us completely. Robert, what good spirits you have. Go, go, added Caroline hastily. I hear the front door. I don't want to go. On the contrary, I want to stay. You know my uncle will be terribly angry. He forbade me to see you because we are Jacobin. A queer Jacobin. Go, Robert, he is coming. I hear him cough. Diable, it is strange. What a pertinacious wish I feel to stay. You remember what he did to Fanny's, began Caroline, and stopped abruptly short. Sweetheart was the word that ought to have followed, but she could not utter it. It seemed calculated to suggest ideas she had no intention to suggest. Ideas delusive and disturbing. Moore was less scrupulous. Fanny, sweetheart, he said at once. He gave him a shower bath under the pump, did he not? He'd do as much for me, I dare say, with pleasure. I should like to provoke the old Turk. Not, however, against you. But he would make a distinction between a cousin and a lover, would he not? Oh, he would not think of you in that way. Of course not. His quarrel with you is entirely political. Yet I should not like the breach to be widened, and he is so testy. Here he is at the garden gate. For your own sake and mine, Robert, go! The beseeching words were aided by a beseeching gesture and a more beseeching look. Moore covered her clasped hands an instant with his, answered her upward by a downward gaze, said good night, and went. Caroline was in a moment at the kitchen door behind Fanny. The shadow of the shovel had at that very instant fell on Moonlit Tomb. The rector emerged, erect as a cane, from his garden, and proceeded in slow march, his hands behind him, down the cemetery. Moore was almost caught. He had to dodge, after all, to coast round the church and finally to bend his tall form behind the wind's ambitious monument. There he was forced to hide full ten minutes, kneeling with one knee on the turf, his hat off, his curls bare to the dew, his dark eyes shining, dried the tombs and vault the wall. She then went down to prayers. When she returned to her chamber, it was to meet the memory of Robert. Slumber's visitation was long averted. Long she sat at her lattice, long gazed down at the old garden and the older church, on the tombs laid out all gray and calm and clear in moonlight. She followed the steps of the night, on its pathway of stars, far into the wee small hours of want the twall. She was with Moore in spirit the whole time. She was at his side. She heard his voice. She gave her hand into his hand. It rested warm in his fingers. When the church clock struck, when any other sound stirred, when a little mouse familiar to her chamber, an intruder for which she would never permit Fanny to lay trap, came rattling amongst the links of her locket chain, her one ring, and another trinket or two on the toilet table, to nibble a bit of biscuit laid ready for it, she looked up, recalled momentarily to the reel. Then she said, half aloud, as if deprecating the accusation of some unseen and unheard monitor, I am not cherishing love dreams. I am only thinking because I cannot sleep. Of course I know he will marry Shirley and his lips parted with inward laughter at his position, for the rector, meantime, stood coolly stargazing and taking snuff within three feet of him. It happened, however, that Mr. Hellstone had no suspicion whatever on his mind, for being usually but vaguely informed of his niece's movements. Not thinking it worthwhile to follow them closely, he was not aware that she had been out at all that day, and imagined her then occupied with book or work in her chamber, where, indeed, she was by this time, though not absorbed in the tranquil employment he ascribed to her, but standing at her window with fast-throbbing heart, peeping anxiously from behind the blind, watching for her uncle to re-enter and her cousin to escape. And at last she was gratified. She heard Mr. Hellstone come in. She saw Robert's with returning silence, with the lull of the chime, and the retreat of her small, untamed, and unknown prodigy. She still resumed the dream, nestling to the vision's side, listening to, conversing with it. It paled at last. As dawn approached, the setting stars and breaking day dimmed the creation of fancy. The wakened song of birds hushed her whispers. The tale, full of fire, quick with earnest, borne away by the morning wind, became a vague murmur. She crept to her couch, chill and dejected. The shape that, seen in a moonbeam, lived, had a pulse, had movement, wore health's glow and youth's freshness turned cold and ghostly gray, confronted with the red of sunrise. It wasted. She was left solitary at last. Okay, time for our little intermission where I remind you guys how I'm able to make this podcast a reality. 
What do you mean by not coming to see me this afternoon as you promised? Was her address to Caroline as she entered the room? I was not in the humor, replied Miss Hellstone very truly. Chapter 14. Shirley seeks to be saved by works. Of course, I know he will marry Shirley, were her first words when she rose in the morning. And he ought to marry her. She can help him, she added firmly. But I shall be forgotten when they are married, was the cruel succeeding thought. Oh, I shall be wholly forgotten. And what, what shall I do when Robert is taken quite from me? Where shall I return? My Robert! I wish I could justly call him mine, but I am poverty and incapacity. Shirley is wealth and power, and she has beauty, too, and love. I cannot deny it. This is no sordid suit. She loves him, not with inferior feelings. She loves, or will love, as he must feel proud to be loved. Not a valid objection can be made. Let them be married, then. But afterwards, I shall be nothing to him. As for being a sister and all that stuff, I despise it. I will either be all or nothing to a man like Robert. No feeble shuffling or false cant is endurable. Past the parlor window. Miss Kildar sauntered slowly by, her gait, her countenance, wearing that mixture of wistfulness and carelessness which, when quiescent, once let that pair be united and I will certainly leave them. As for lingering about, playing the hypocrite and pretending to calm sentiments of friendship when my soul will be wrung with other feelings, I shall not descend to such degradation. As little could I fill the place of their mutual friend as that of their deadly foe, as little could I stand between them as trample over them. Robert is a first-rate man. In my eyes, I have loved, do love, and must love him. I would be his wife if I could. As I cannot, I must go where I shall never see him. There is but one alternative, to cleave to him as if I were a part of him, or to be sundered from him wide as the two poles of a sphere. Sunder me then, Providence. Part us speedily. Some such aspirations as these were again working in her mind late in the afternoon, when the apparition of one of the personages haunting her thoughts was the wanted cast of her looking character of her bearing. When animated, the carelessness quite vanished. The wistfulness became blent with a genial gaiety, seasoning the laugh, the smile, the glance, with a unique flavor of sentiment, so that mirth from her never resembled the crackling of thorns under a pot. Shirley had already fixed on her a penetrating eye. No, she said. I see you are not in the humor for loving me. You are in one of your sunless, inclement moods, when one feels a fellow creature's presence is not welcome to you. You have such moods. Are you aware of it? Do you mean to stay long, Shirley? Yes, I am coming to have tea, and must have it before I go. I shall take the liberty, then, of removing my bonnet without being asked. And this she did, and then stood on the rug with her hands behind her. A pretty expression you have in your countenance, she went on, still gazing keenly, though not inimically, rather indeed pityingly, at Caroline. Wonderfully self-supported you look, you solitude-seeking wounded deer. Are you afraid Shirley will worry you if she discovers that you are hurt and that you bleed? You talk nonsense. I never do fear Shirley. But sometimes you dislike her. Often you avoid her. Shirley can feel when she is slighted and shunned. If you had not walked home in the company you did last night, you would have been a different girl today. What time did you reach the rectory? By ten. <clears throat> you took three quarters of an hour to walk a mile. Was it you or more who lingered so? Shirley, he talked nonsense. That I doubt not. Or he looked it, which is a thousand times worse. I see the reflection of his eyes on your forehead at this moment. I feel disposed to call him out, if only I could get a trustworthy second. I feel desperately irritated. I felt so last night, and I felt it all day. You don't ask me why, she proceeded after a pause. You little silent, over-modest thing, and you don't deserve that I should pour out my secrets into your lap without an invitation. Upon my word, I could have found it in my heart to have dogged more yesterday evening, with dire intent. I have pistols and can use them. Stuff, Shirley. Which would you have shot, me or Robert? Neither, perhaps. Perhaps myself. More likely a bat or a tree bow. He is a puppy, your cousin, a quiet, serious, sensible, judicious, ambitious puppy. I see him standing before me, talking this half-stern, half-gentle talk, bearing me down, as I am very conscious he does, with his fixity of purpose, etc., and then I have no patience with him. Miss Kildar started off on a rapid walk through the room, repeating energetically that she had no patience with men in general, and with her tenant in particular. You are mistaken, urged Caroline in some anxiety. Robert is no puppy or male flirt. I can vouch for that. You vouch for it? Do you think I'll take your word on the subject? There is no one's testimony I would not credit sooner than yours. To advance Moore's fortune, you would cut off your right hand. But not tell lies. And if I speak the truth, I must assure you that he was just civil to me last night. That was all. I never asked what he was. I can guess. 
I saw him from the window take your hand in his long fingers just as he went out my gate. That is nothing. I'm not a stranger, you know. I'm an old acquaintance and his cousin. I feel indignant, and that is the long and short of the matter, responded Miss Kildar. All my comfort, she added presently, is broken up by his maneuvers. He keeps intruding between you and me. Without him, we should be good friends, but that six feet of puppyhood makes a perpetually recurring eclipse of our friendship. Again and again he crosses and obscures the disc I want always to see clear. Ever and anon he renders me to you a mere born nuisance. No, surely, no. He does. You did not want my society this afternoon, and I feel it hard. You are naturally somewhat reserved, but I am a social personage who cannot live alone. If we were but left unmolested, moreover, there is a sort of unhappiness which not only depresses, but corrodes, and that, I fear, is your portion. Will pity do you any good, Lena? If it will, take some from Shirley. She offers largely. I have that regard for you that I could bear you in my presence forever, and not for the fraction of a second do I ever wish to be rid of you. You cannot say as much respecting me. Surely, I can say anything you wish. Surely, I like you. You will wish me at Jericho tomorrow, Lena. I shall not. I am every day growing more accustomed to, fonder of you. You know I am too English to get above a human friendship all at once. But you are so much better than common. You are so different to everyday young ladies. I esteem you. I value you. You are never a burden to me. Never. Do you believe what I say? Partly, replied Miss Kildar, smiling rather incredulously. But you are a peculiar personage. Quiet as you look, there is both a force and a depth somewhere within not easily reached or appreciated. Then you certainly are not happy. And unhappy people are rarely good. Is that what you mean? Not at all. I mean rather that unhappy people are often preoccupied and not in the moon for discoursing with companions of my nature, and warrants the article genuine. Surely, I never had a sister. You never had a sister. But it flashes on me at this moment how sisters feel towards each other. Affection twined with their life, which no shocks of feeling can uproot, which little quarrels only trample an incident, that it may spring more freshly when the pressure is removed. Affection that no passion can ultimately outrival, with which even love itself cannot do more than compete in force and truth. Love hurts us so, surely. It is so tormenting, so racking, and it burns away our strength with its flame. Inaffection is no pain and no fire, only sustenance and balm. I am supported and soothed when you, that is, you only, are near, Shirley. Do you believe me now? I am always easy to believe when the creed pleases me. We really are friends, then, Lena, in spite of the black eclipse? We really are, returned the other, drawing Shirley towards her and making her sit down. Chance what may. Come, then, we will talk of something else than the troubler. But at this moment the rector came in, and the something else of which Miss Kildar was about to talk was not again alluded to till the moment of her departure. She then delayed a few minutes in the passage to say, Caroline, I wish to tell you that I have a great weight on my mind. My conscience is quite uneasy, as if I had committed, or was going to commit, a crime. It is not my private conscience, you must understand, but my landed proprietor and lord of the manor conscience. I have gone into my clutch of an eagle with iron talons. I have fallen under a stern influence, which I scarcely approve, but cannot resist. Something will be done ere long, I fear, which it by no means pleases me to think of. To ease my mind and to prevent harm as far as I can, I mean to enter on a series of good works. Don't be surprised, therefore, if you see me all at once turn outrageously charitable. I have no idea how to begin, but you must give me some advice. We will talk more on the subject tomorrow, and just ask that excellent person, Miss Ainsley, that, though a well-meaning, I am rather a neglected character, and then she will feel less scandalized at my ignorance about clothing societies and such things. To step up to Fieldhead, I have some notion of putting myself under her tuition. Won't she have a precious pupil? Drop a hint to her, Lena. Trying to find out where she could retrench, that she had also just given an audience to Mrs. Gill, the cook, and had sent that person away with the notion that her, Shirley's, brain was certainly crazed. I have lectured her on the duty of being careful, said she, in a way quite new to her. So eloquent was I on the text of economy that I surprised myself, for you see, on the morrow, Caroline found Shirley sitting gravely at her desk with an account book, a bundle of banknotes, and a well-filled purse before her. She was looking mighty serious, but a little puzzled. She said she had been casting an eye over the weekly expenditure and housekeeping at the hall. It is altogether a fresh idea. I never thought, much less spoke, on the subject till lately, but it is all theory, for when I came to the practical part I could retrench nothing. 
I had not firmness to take off a single pound of butter, or to prosecute to any clear result an inquest into the destiny of either dripping, lard, bread, cold meat, or other kitchen perquisite whatever. I know we never get up illuminations at Fieldhead, but I could not ask the meaning of sundry, quite unaccountable pounds of candles. We do not wash for the parish, yet I viewed in silence items of soap and bleaching powder calculated to satisfy the solicitude of whose figures seem to prove that fact. Falsehood, I mean. Caroline, you may laugh at me, but you can't change me. I am a poltroon on certain points, I feel it, of the most anxious inquirer after our position in reference to those articles. Carnivorous I am not, nor is Mrs. Pryor, nor is Mrs. Gill herself. Yet I only hemmed and opened my eyes a little wide when I saw butcher's bills no true courage about this. Surely, what fit of self-injustice is this? My uncle, who is not given to speak well of women, says there are not ten thousand men in England as genuinely fearless as you. There is a base alloy of moral cowardice in my composition. I blushed and hung my head before Mrs. Gill, when she ought to have been faltering confessions to me. I found it impossible to get up the spirit even to hint, much less to prove to her that she was a cheat. I have no calm dignity. I am fearless physically. I am never nervous about danger. I was not startled from self-possession when Mr. Wynne's great red bull rose with a bellow before my face as I was crossing the cowslip lee alone, stooped his begrimed, sullen head, and made a run at me. But I was afraid of seeing Mrs. Gill brought to shame and confusion of face. You have twice, ten times my strength of mind on certain subjects, Caroline. You, whom no persuasion can induce to pass a bull, however quiet he looks, would have firmly shown my housekeeper she had done wrong. Then you would have gently and wisely admonished her, and at last, I dare say, provided she had seemed penitent, you would have very sweetly forgiven her. Of this conduct I am incapable. However, in spite of exaggerated imposition, I still find we live within our means. I have money in hand, and I really must do some good with it. The Briarfield poor are badly off. They must be helped. They are great fools for their pains. For those who are not hungry, it is easy to palaver. What ought I to do? Thank you, Lena. Had I not better distribute the cash at once? No, indeed, Shirley. You will not manage properly. I have often noticed that your only notion of charity is to give shillings and half-crowns in a careless, free-handed sort of way, which is liable to continual abuse. You must have a prime minister, or you will get yourself into series of scrapes. You suggested Miss Ainsley yourself. To Miss Ainsley I will apply. And meantime, promise to keep quiet and not begin throwing away your money. What a great deal you have, Shirley. You must feel rich with all that. Yes, I feel of consequence. It is not an immense sum, but I feel responsible for its disposal. And really, that responsibility weighs on my mind more heavily than I could have expected. They say that there are some families almost starving to death in Briarfield. Some of my own cottagers are in wretched circumstances. I must and will help them. Some people say we shouldn't give alms to the poor, Shirley, about the degradation of charity and so on, but they forget the brevity of life as well as its bitterness. We have none of us long to live. Let us help each other through seasons of want and woe as well as we can, for, after all, if political incendiaries came here to kindle conflagration in the neighborhood and my property is attacked, I shall defend it like a tigress. I know I shall. Let me listen to Mercy as long as she is near me. Her voice once drowned by the shout of ruffian defiance, and I shall be full of impulses to resist and quell. If once the poor gather and rise in the form of the mob, without heeding in the least the scruples of vain philosophy. But you do help others, Shirley. You give a great deal as it is. Not enough. I must give more, or, I tell you, my brother's blood will some day be crying to heaven against me. I shall turn against them as an aristocrat. If they bully me, I must defy. If they attack, I must resist, and I will. You talk like Robert. I feel like Robert, only more fierily. Let them meddle with Robert, or Robert's mill, or Robert's interests, and I shall hate them. At present I am no patrician, nor do I regard the poor around me as plebeians. But if once they violently wrong me or mine, and then presume to dictate to us, I shall quite forget pity for their wretchedness. What I want to do is prevent mischief. I cannot forget, either day or night, that these embittered feelings of the poor against the rich have been generated in suffering. They would neither hate nor envy us if they did not deem us so much happier than themselves. To allay this suffering, and thereby lessen this hate, let me, out of my abundance, give abundantly, and that the donation may go farther, let it be made wisely. To that intent, we must introduce some clear, calm, practical sense into our counsels. So go and fetch Miss Ainsley, and respect for their poverty, and scorn of their ignorance and wrath at their insolence. Surely, how your eyes flash! Because my soul burns. Would you, any more than me, let Robert be bored down by numbers? If I had your power to aid Robert, I would use it as you mean to use it. 
If I could be such a friend to him as you can be, I would stand by him, as you mean to stand by him, till death. And now, Lena, though your eyes don't flash, they glow. You drop your lids, but I saw a kindled spark. However, it has not yet come to fighting. Without another word, Caroline put on her bonnet and departed. It may, perhaps, appear strange that neither she nor Shirley thought of consulting Mrs. Pryor on their scheme, but they were wise in abstaining. To have consulted her, and this they knew by instinct, would only have been to involve her in painful embarrassment. She was far better informed, better read, a deeper thinker than Miss Ainsley. But of administrative energy, of executive activity, she had none. She would subscribe her own modest might to a charitable object willingly. Secret almsgiving suited her, but in public plans, on a large scale, she could take no part. As to originating them, that was out of the question. This Shirley knew, and therefore she did not trouble Mrs. Pryor by unavailing conferences, which could only remind her of her own deficiencies and do no good. It was a bright day for Miss Ainsley when she was summoned to field head to deliberate on projects so congenial to her, when she was seated with all honor and deference at a table with paper, pen, ink, and, what was best of all, cash before her, and requested to draw up a regular plan for administering relief to the destitute poor of Briarfield. She, who knew them all, had studied their wants, had again and again felt in what way they might best be succored, could the means of succor only be found, was fully competent to the undertaking, and a meek exultation gladdened her kind heart as she felt herself able to answer clearly and promptly the eager questions put by the two young girls, as she showed them in her answers how much and what serviceable knowledge she had acquired of the condition of her fellow creatures about her. Shirley placed at her disposal three hundred pounds, and at sight of the money, Miss Ainsley's eyes filled with joyful tears, for she already saw the hungry fed, the naked clothed, the sick comforted thereby. She quickly drew up a simple, sensible plan for its expenditure, and she assured them brighter times would now come round, for she doubted not the Lady of Fieldhead's example would be followed by others. She must try to get additional subscriptions and to form a fund, but first she must consult the clergy. Yes, on that point she was peremptory. Mr. Hellstone, Dr. Boltby, Mr. Hall, must be consulted, for not only must Briarfield be relieved, but Winbury and Nunnally. It would, she averred, be presumption in her to take a single step unauthorized by them. The clergy were sacred beings in Miss Ainsley's eyes. No matter what might be the insignificance of the individual, his station made him holy. The very curates, who, in their trivial arrogance, were hardly worthy to tie her pattern strings or carry her cotton umbrella or check woolen shawl, she, in her pure, sincere enthusiasm, looked upon as sucking saints. No matter how clearly their little vices and enormous absurdities were pointed out to her, she could not see them. She was blind to ecclesiastical defects. The white surplice covered a multitude of sins. Shirley, knowing this harmless infatuation on the part of her recently chosen prime minister, stipulated expressly that the curates were to have no voice in the disposal of the money, that their meddling fingers were not to be inserted into that pie. The rectors, of course, must be paramount, and they might be trusted. They had some experience, some sagacity, and Mr. Hall, at least, had sympathy and loving kindness for his fellow men. But as for the youth under them, they must be set aside, kept down, and taught that subordination and silence best became their years and capacity. It was with some horror Miss Ainsley heard this language. Caroline, however, interposing with a mild word or two in praise of Mr. Sweeting, calmed her again. Sweeting was, indeed, her own favorite. She endeavored to respect Messrs. Malone and Dawn, but the slices of sponge cake and glasses of cowslip or primrose wine she had at different times administered to Sweeting, when he came to see her in her little cottage, were ever offered with sentiments of truly motherly regard. The same innocuous collation she had once presented to Malone, but where good was to be done, Miss Ainsley would immediately have set out on a walk of ten miles round to the three rectors in order to show her plan and humbly solicit their approval. But Miss Kildar interdicted this and proposed, as an amendment, to collect the clergy in a small select reunion that evening at Fieldhead. That personage evinced such open scorn of the offering she had never ventured to renew it. To Don, she always served the treat and was happy to see his approbation of it proved beyond a doubt by the fact of his usually eating two pieces of cake and putting a third in his pocket. Indefatigable in her exertions, she was like a kind daughter to them. Mr. Hall, she left to Caroline. Rather, it was Caroline's care Mr. Hall consigned himself. He generally sought Caroline in every party where she and he happened to be. He was not in general a ladies' man, though all ladies liked him. Something of a bookworm he was, nearsighted, spectacled, now and then abstracted. To old ladies, he was kind as a son. To men of every occupation and grade, he was acceptable. The truth, simplicity, frankness of his manners, the nobleness of his integrity, Miss Ainsley was to meet them and the plan was to be discussed in full privy council. Shirley managed to get the senior priesthood together accordingly, and before the old maid's arrival, she had, further, talked all the gentlemen into the most charming mood imaginable. 
She herself had taken in hand Dr. Boltby and Mr. Hellstone. The first was a stubborn old Welshman, hot, opinionated, and obstinate, but withal a man who did a great deal of good, though not without making some noise about it. The latter we know. She had rather a friendly feeling for both, especially for old Hellstone, and it cost her no trouble to be quite delightful to them. She took them round the garden, she gathered them flowers, the reality and elevation of his piety won him friends in every grade. His poor clerk and sexton delighted in him, the noble patron of his living esteemed him highly. It was only with young, handsome, fashionable, and stylish ladies he felt a little shy. Being himself a plain man, plain in aspect, plain in manners, plain in speech, he seemed to fear their dash, elegance, and airs. But Miss Hellstone had neither dash nor airs, and her native elegance was of a very quiet order, quiet as the beauty of a ground-loving hedgeflower. He was a fluent, cheerful, agreeable talker. Caroline could talk, too, in a tete-a-tete. She liked Mr. Hall to come and take the seat next to her in a party, and thus secure her from Peter Augustus Malone, Joseph Don, or John Sykes, and Mr. Hall never failed to avail himself of this privilege when he possibly could. Such preference shown by a single gentleman to a single lady would certainly, in ordinary cases, have set in motion the tongues of the gossips. But Cyril Hall was forty-five years old, slightly bald, and slightly gray, and nobody ever said or thought he was likely to be married to Miss Hellstone. Nor did he think so himself. He was wedded already to his books in his parish. His kind sister Margaret, spectacled and learned like himself, made him happy in a single state. He considered it too late to change. Besides, he had known Caroline as a pretty little girl. She sat on his knee many a time. He had brought her toys and given her books. He felt that her friendship for him was mixed with a sort of filial respect. He could not have brought himself to attempt to give another color to her sentiments, and his serene mind could glass a fair image without feeling its depths troubled by the reflection. When Miss Ainsley arrived, she was made kindly welcome by everyone. Mrs. Pryor and Margaret Hall made room for her on the sofa between them, and when the three were seated, they formed a trio which the gay and thoughtless would have scorned, indeed, as quite worthless and unattractive. A middle-aged widow and two plain, spectacled old maids, yet which had its own quiet value, as many a suffering and friendless human being knew. Shirley opened the business and showed the plan. I know the hand which drew up that, said Mr. Hall, glancing at Miss Ainsley, and smiling benignantly. His approbation was one at once. Boltby heard and deliberated with bent brow and protruded under lip. His consent he considered too weighty to be given in a hurry. Hellstone glanced sharply round with an alert, suspicious expression, as if he apprehended that female craft was at work and that something in petticoats was somehow trying underhand to acquire too much influence and make itself of too much importance. Shirley caught and comprehended the expression. This scheme is nothing, said she carelessly. It is only an outline, a mere suggestion. You gentlemen are requested to draw up rules of your own and she directly fetched her writing case, smiling queerly to herself as she bent over the table where it stood. She produced a sheet of paper, a new pen, drew an armchair to the table, and presented her hand to old Hellstone, begged permission to install him in it. For a minute he was a little stiff, and stood wrinkling his copper-colored forehead strangely. At last he muttered, "'Well, you are neither my wife nor my daughter, so I'll be led for once. But mind, I know I am led. Your little female maneuvers don't blind me.' "'Oh,' said Shirley, dipping the pen in the ink and putting it into his hand, "'you must regard me as Captain Kildar today.' This is quite a gentleman's affair. Yours and mine entirely, doctor. So she had dubbed the rector. The ladies there are only to be our aide-de-camp, and at their peril they speak, till we have settled the whole business. He smiled a little grimly and began to write. He soon interrupted himself to ask questions and consult his brethren, disdainfully lifting his glance over the curly heads of the two girls and the demure caps of the elder ladies, to meet the winking glasses and gray pates of the priests. And the discussion which ensued, all three gentlemen, to their infinite credit, showed a thorough acquaintance with the poor of their parishes, and even minute knowledge of their separate wants. Each rector knew where clothing was needed, where food would be most acceptable, where money could be bestowed with the probability of it being judiciously laid out. Wherever their memories fell short, Miss Ainsley or Miss Hall, if applied to, could help them out, but both ladies took care not to speak unless spoken to. Neither of them wanted to be foremost, but each sincerely desired to be useful, and useful the clergy consented to make them, with which boon they were content. Shirley stood behind the rectors, leaning over their shoulders now and then to glance at the rules drawn up and the list of cases making out, listening to all they said, and still at intervals smiling her queer smile, a smile not ill-natured, but significant too significant to be generally thought amiable. Men rarely like such of their fellows as read their inward nature too clearly and truly. It is good for women, especially, to be endowed with a soft blindness, to have mild, dim eyes that never penetrate below the surface of things, that take all for what it seems. 
Thousands, knowing this, keep their eyelids drooped on system, but the most downcast glance has its loophole, through which it can, on occasion, take its sentinel survey of life. I remember once seeing a pair of blue eyes that were usually thought sleepy, secretly on the alert, and I knew by their expression, an expression which chilled my blood, it was in that quarter so wondrously unexpected, that for years they had been accustomed to silent soul-reading. The world called the owner of these blue eyes, Bon Petit Femme, she was not an Englishwoman. I learned her nature afterwards, got it off by heart, studied it in its farthest, most hidden recesses. She was the finest, deepest, subtlest schemer in Europe. When all was at length settled to Miss Kildar's mind, and the clergy had entered so fully into the spirit of her plans as to head the subscription list with their signatures for fifty pounds each, she ordered supper to be served, having previously directed Mrs. Gill to exercise her utmost skill in the preparation of this repast. Mr. Hall was no bon vivant. The recherchère supper was naturally an abstemious man, indifferent to luxury, but Boltby and Hellstone both liked good cookery. It had been his aim to gratify and satisfy his priestly guests. He had succeeded and was radiant with glee, consequently put them into excellent humor. They did justice to it, though in a gentlemanly way, not in the mode Mr. Don would have done had he been present. A glass of fine wine was likewise tasted, with a discerning though decorous relish. Captain Kildar was complimented on his taste. The compliment charmed him, she said. Here he comes, suddenly exclaimed Shirley, breaking off, starting up and running to the window. Here comes a diversion. I never told you of superb conquest I have made lately, made at those parties to which I can never persuade you to accompany me, and the thing has been done without effort or intention on my part, but my scrutiny was presently baffled by finding he was watching me. "'There it is!' exclaimed Shirley. "'You can't fix your eyes on him, but his presently flash on you. "'He is never off his guard. "'He won't give you an advantage. "'Even when he does not look at you, "'his thoughts seem to be busy amongst your own thoughts.'" Chapter 15. Mr. Dawn's Exodus The next day, Shirley expressed to Caroline how delighted she felt that the little party had gone off so well. "'I rather like to entertain a circle of gentlemen,' said she. "'It is amusing to observe how they enjoy a judiciously concocted repast. "'For ourselves, you see, these choice wines and these scientific dishes are of no importance to us.' But gentlemen seem to retain something of the naivete of children about food, and one likes to please them. That is, when they show the becoming, decent, self-government or admirable rectors. I watch more sometimes to try and discover how he can be pleased, but he has not that child's simplicity about him. Did you ever find out his accessible point, Caroline? You have seen more of him than I. It is not at any rate that of my uncle or Dr. Boltby, returned Caroline, smiling. She always felt a sort of shy pleasure in following Miss Kildar's lead respecting the discussion of her cousin's character. Left to herself, she never would have touched on the subject, but when invited, the temptation of talking about him, of whom she was ever thinking, was irresistible. But, she added, I really don't know what it is, for I never watched Robert in my life, tracing your words and actions to their source, contemplating your motives at his ease. Oh, I know that sort of character, or something in that same style. It is one that piques me singularly. How does it affect you? This question was a specimen of one of Shirley's sharp, sudden turns. Caroline used to be fluttered by them at first, but she had now gotten to the way of parrying these home thrusts like a little Quakeress. Peek you? In what way does it pique you? That I have air. There is the bell, and by all that's delicious. There are two of them. Do they never hunt, then, except in couples? You may have one, Lena, and you may take your choice. I hope I am generous enough. Listen to Tartar. The black-muzzled tawny dog, a glimpse of which was seen in the chapter which first introduced its mistress to the reader, here gave tongue in the hall, amidst whose hollow space the deep bark resounded formidably. A growl more terrible than the bark, menacing as stuttered thunder, succeeded. Listen, again cried Shirley, laughing. You would think that the prelude to a bloody onslaught... They will be frightened. They don't know old Tartar as I do. They are not aware his uproars are all sound and fury, signifying nothing. Some bustle was heard, exclaimed a high-toned, imperious voice, and then came a crack of a cane or whip. Immediately there was a yell, a scutter, a run, a positive tumult. Down, sir, down! Oh, Malone, Malone! Down, down, down! He really is worrying them, exclaimed Shirley. They have struck him. Gentlemen, was uttered in Miss Kildar's silvery b A blow is what he is not used to and will not take. Out she ran. A gentleman was fleeing up the oak staircase, making for refuge in the gallery or chambers in hot haste. Another was backing fast at the stairfoot, wildly flourishing a naughty stick, at the same time reiterating, Down! 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 While the tawny dog bayed, bellowed, howled at him, and a group of servants came bundling from the kitchen. 
The dog made a spring. The second gentleman turned tail and rushed after his comrade. The first was already safe in a bedroom. He held the door against his fellow. Nothing so merciless as terror. But the other fugitive struggled hard. The door was about to yield to his strength. She was caressing the said tartar. He lay crouched at her feet, his forepaws stretched out, his tail still in threatening agitation, his nostrils snorting, his bulldog eyes conscious of a dull fire. He was an honest, phlegmatic, stupid, but stubborn canine character. He loved his mistress and John, the man who fed him, but was mostly indifferent to the rest of the world. Quiet enough he was, unless struck or threatened with a stick, and that put a demon into him at once. "'Mr. Malone, how do you do?' continued Shirley, vibrating tones. "'Spare my locks, if you please. Calm yourselves. Come down. Look at Tartar. He won't harm a cat.' Lifting up her mirth-lit face to the gallery. "'That is not the way to the oak parlor. That is Mrs. Pryor's apartment. Request your friend Mr. Don to evacuate. I shall have the greatest pleasure in receiving him in a lower room.' Ha ha, cried Malone in hollow laughter, quitting the door and leaning over the massive balustrade. Really, that animal alarmed Dawn. He is a little timid, he proceeded, stiffening himself and walking trimly to the stairhead. I thought it better to follow in order to reassure him. It appears you did. Well, come down if you please. John, turning to her manservant, go upstairs and liberate Mr. Dawn. Take care, Mr. Malone, the stairs are slippery. In truth, they were, being of polished oak. The caution came a little late for Malone. He had slipped already in his stately descent and was only saved from falling by a crutch at the banisters, which made the whole structure creak again. Tartar seemed to think the visitor's descent affected with unwarranted eclat, and accordingly he growled once more. Malone, however, was no coward. The spring of the dog had taken him by surprise, but he passed him now in suppressed fury rather than fear. If a look could have strangled Tartar, he would have breathed no more. Forgetting politeness in his sullen rage, and civil he tried to be, and Malone pushed into the parlor before Miss Kildar. He glanced at Miss Hellstone, who scarcely bring himself to bend to her. He glared on both ladies. He looked as if, had either of them been his wife, he would have made a glorious husband at the moment. In each hand, he seemed as if he would have liked to clutch one and gripe her to death. However, Shirley took pity. She ceased to laugh, and Caroline was too true a lady to smile even at anyone under mortification. Tartar was dismissed. Peter Augustus was soothed. For Shirley had looks and tones that might soothe the very bull. He had sense to feel that, since he could not challenge the owner of the dog, he had better be civil. And his attempts being well received, he grew presently very civil and quite himself again. He had come, indeed, for the express purpose of making himself charming and fascinating. Rough portents had met him on his first admission to Fieldhead, but that passage got over, charming and fascinating he resolved to be. Like March, having come in like a lion, he proposed to go out like a lamb. For the sake of air, as it appeared, or perhaps for that of ready exit in case of some new emergency arriving, he took his seat, not on the sofa, where Miss Kildar offered him enthronization, nor yet near the fireside, to which Caroline, by a friendly sign, gently invited him, but on a chair close to the door. Being no longer sullen or furious, he grew, after his fashion, constrained and embarrassed. He talked to the ladies by fits and starts, choosing for topics whatever was most intensely commonplace. He sighed deeply, significantly, at the close of every sentence. He sighed in each pause. He sighed ere he opened his mouth. At last, finding it desirable to add ease to his other charms, he drew forth to aid him an ample silk pocket handkerchief. This was to be the graceful toy with which his unoccupied hands were to trifle. He went to work with a certain energy. He folded the red and yellow square cornerwise. He whipped it open with a waft. Again, he folded it in narrower compass. He made it of a handsome band. To what purpose would he proceed to apply the ligature? Would he wrap it around his throat, his head? Should it be a comforter or a turban? Neither. Peter Augustus had an inventive and original genius. He was about to show the lady's grace of action possessing at least the charm of novelty. He sat on the chair with his athletic Irish legs crossed, and these legs, in that attitude, he circled with a bandana and bound firmly together. It was evident he felt this device to be worth an encore. He repeated it more than once. The second performance sent Shirley to the window to laugh her silent but irrepressible laugh unseen. It turned Caroline's head aside that her long curls might screen the smile mantling on her features. Miss Hellstone, indeed, was amused by more than one point in Peter's demeanor. She was edified at the complete though abrupt diversion of his homage from herself to the heiress. The five thousand pounds he supposed her likely one day to inherit were not to be weighed in the balance against Miss Kildar's estate and hall. He took no pains to conceal his calculations and tactics. He pretended to no gradual change of views. He built about at once. The pursuit of the lesser fortune was openly relinquished for that of the greater. On what grounds he expected to succeed in his chase himself best knew. 
certainly not by skillful management. Nor, as he presented himself at the oak parlor door, did he seem in the slightest degree ashamed or confused. Not a whit. Dawn, indeed, was of that coldly phlegmatic, immovably complacent, densely self-satisfied nature. From the length of time that elapsed, it appeared that John had some difficulty in persuading Mr. Dawn to descend. At length, however, that gentleman appeared, which is insensible to shame. He had never blushed in his life. No humiliation could abash him. His nerves were not capable of sensation enough to stir his life and make color mount to his cheeks. He had no fire in his blood and no modesty in his soul. He was a frontless, arrogant, decorous slip of the commonplace, conceited, inane, insipid, and this gentleman had a notion of wooing Miss Kildar. He knew no more, however, how to set about the business than if he had been an image carved in wood. He had no idea of a taste to be pleased, a heart to be reached in courtship. His notion was that he should have formally visited her a few times to write a letter proposing marriage. Then he calculated she would accept him for love of his office. Then they would be married. Then he should be master of Fieldhead, and he should live very comfortably, have servants at his command, eat and drink of the best, and be a great man. You would not have suspected his intentions when he addressed his intended bride in an impertinent, injured tone. A very dangerous dog, that Miss Kildar. I wonder you should keep such an animal. Do you, Mr. Don? Perhaps you will wonder more when I tell you that I am very fond of him. I should say you are not serious in the assertion. Can't fancy a lady fond of that brute. Just so ugly. A mere carter's dog. Pray hang him. Hang what I'm fond of. And purchase in his stead. Oh, you can't be, you know. All ladies are alike in those matters. That is universally allowed. Tartar frightened you terribly, Mr. Don. I hope you won't take any harm. That I shall, no doubt. He gave me a turn I shall not soon forget. When I saw him, such was Mr. Don's pronunciation, about to spring, I thought I should have fainted. Perhaps you did faint in the bedroom. You were a long time there. No, I bore up that I might hold the door fast. I was determined not to let anyone enter. I thought I would keep a barrier between me and the enemy. But what if your friend Mr. Malone had been worried? Malone must take care of himself. Your man persuaded me to come out at last by saying the dog was chained up in his kennel. If I had not been assured of this, I would have remained all day in the chamber. But what is that? I declare that man has told a falsehood. The dog is there. And indeed, Tartar walked past the glass door opening to the garden, stiff, tawny, and black-muzzled as ever. He still seemed in bad humor. He was growling again and whistling a half-strangled whistle, being an inheritance from the bulldog side of his ancestry. There are other visitors coming, observed Shirley, with that provoking coolness which the owners of formidable-looking dogs are apt to show while their animals are all bristle and bay. Tartar sprang down the pavement towards the gate. Some sweetly pooty pug or poodle, something appropriate to the fair sex. Ladies generally like lap dogs. Perhaps I had an exception. Bellowing avec explosion. His mistress quietly opened the glass door and stepped out. What? Tartar, tartar, said a cheery, rather boyish voice. Don't you know us? Good morning, old boy. And little Mr. Sweeting, whose conscious good nature made him comparatively fearless of man, woman, child, or brute, came through the gate, caressing the guardian. His vicar, Mr. Hall, followed him. He had no fear of Tartar either, and Tartar had no ill will to him. He snuffed both the gentlemen round, and then, chirruping to him. His bellow was already silenced, and he was lifting up his huge, blunt, stupid head to the new collars to be patted. As if concluding that they were harmless and might be allowed to pass, he withdrew to the sunny front of the hall, leaving the archway free. Mr. Sweeting followed and would have played with him, but Tartar took no notice of his caresses. It was only his mistress's hand whose touch gave him pleasure. To all others, he showed himself obstinately insensible. Shirley advanced to meet Messrs. Hall and Sweeting, shaking hands with him cordially. They were come to tell her of certain successes they had achieved that morning in application for subscriptions to the fund. Mr. Hall's eyes beamed benignantly through his spectacles, his plain face looking positively handsome with goodness, and when Caroline, seeing who was come, ran out to meet him and put both her hands into his... He gazed down on her with a gentle, serene, affectionate expression that gave him the aspect of a smiling melancholy. Instead of re-entering the house, they strayed through the garden, the ladies walking one on each side of Mr. Hall. It was a breezy, sunny day. The air freshened the girls' cheeks and gracefully disheveled their ringlets. Both of them looked pretty, one gay. Mr. Hall spoke oftenest of his brilliant companion, looking most frequently at the quiet one. Miss Kildor gathered handfuls of the profusely blooming flowers, whose perfume filled the enclosure. She gave some to Caroline, telling her to choose a nosegay for Mr. Hall and with her lap filled with delicate and splendid blossoms, Caroline sat down on the steps of a summer house. The vicar stood near her, leaning on his cane. Shirley, who could not be inhospitable, now called out the neglected pair in the oak parlor. She convoyed Dawn past his dread enemy Tartar, who, with his nose on his forepaws, lay snoring under the meridian sun. 
Don was not grateful. He never was grateful for kindness and attention, but he was glad of the safeguard. Miss Kildar, desirous of being impartial, offered the curate's flowers. They accepted them with native awkwardness. Malone seemed specially at a loss when a bouquet filled one hand, while his shillelagh occupied the other. Don's thank you was rich to hear. It was the most fatuous and arrogant of sounds, implying that he considered this offering an homage to his merits, and an attempt on the part of the heiress to ingratiate herself into his priceless affections. Sweden alone received the posy like a smart, sensible little man, as he was, putting it gallantly and Natalie into his buttonhole. As a reward for his good manners, Miss Kildar, beckoning him apart, gave him some commission, which made his eyes sparkle with glee. Away he flew, round by the courtyard to the kitchen. No need to give him directions, he was always at home everywhere. Ere long he reappeared, carrying a round table, which he placed under the cedar. Then he collected six garden chairs from various nooks and bowers on the grounds, and placed them in a circle. The parlor maid, Miss Kildar kept no footman, came out, bared a napkin-covered tray. Sweden's nimble fingers aided in disposing glasses, plates, knives, and forks. He assisted her, too, in setting forth a neat luncheon, consisting of cold chicken, ham, and tarts. This sort of impromptu regal it was Shirley's delight to offer any chance guests, and nothing pleased her better than to have an alert, obliging little friend like Sweden to run about her hand, cheerily receive, and briskly execute her hospitable hints. David and she were on the best terms in the world, and his devotion to the heiress was quite disinterested, since it prejudiced in nothing his faithful allegiance to the magnificent Dora Sykes. The repast turned out a very merry one. Don and Malone, indeed, contributed but little to its vivacity, the chief part they played in it being what concerned the knife, fork, and wine glass, but where four such natures as Mr. Hall, David Sweeting, Shirley, and Caroline were assembled in health and amity on a green lawn under a sunny sky, amidst a wilderness of flowers, there could not be ungenial dullness. In the course of conversation, Mr. Hall reminded the ladies that Whitsuntide was approaching, when the grand United Sunday School tea-drinking and procession of the three parishes of Briarfield, Winbury, and Nunnally were to take place. Caroline, he knew, would be at her post as teacher, he said, and he hoped Miss Kildar would not be wanting. He hoped that she would make her first public appearance amongst them at that time. Shirley was not the person to miss an occasion of this sort. She liked festive excitement, a gathering of happiness, a concentration and combination of pleasant details, a throng of glad faces, a muster of elated hearts. She did not know what she would have to do. She told Mr. Hall they might count on her with security, but they might dispose of her as they pleased. And, said Caroline, you will promise to come to my table and to sit near me, Mr. Hall. I shall not fail, Diovolent, said he. I have occupied the place in her right hand at these monster tea drinkings for the last six years, he proceeded, turning to Miss Kildar. They made her a Sunday school teacher when she was a little girl of twelve. She's not particularly self-confident by nature, and the first time she had to take a tray, as the phrase is, and make tea in public, there was some piteous trembling and flushing. As you may have observed, I observed the speechless panic, the cups shaking in the little hand, and the overflowing teapot filled too full from the urn. I came to her aid, took a seat next to her, managed the urn in the slot basin, and in fact made the tea for her like any old woman. I was very grateful to you, interposed Caroline. You were. You told me so with such earnest sincerity that repaid me well. Inasmuch as it was not like the majority of little ladies of twelve, whom you may help and caress forever without their evincing any quicker sense of the kindness done and meant than if they were made of wax and wood instead of flesh and nerves. She kept close to me, Miss Kildar, the rest of the evening, walking with me over the grounds where the children were playing. She followed me into the vestry when all were summoned to church. She would, I believe, have mounted with me to the pulpit had I not taken the previous precaution of conducting her to the rectory pew. And he has been my friend ever since, said Caroline, and always sat at her table, near her tray, and handed the cups. That is the extent of my services. The next thing I do for her will be to marry her some day to some curator mill-owner. But mind, Caroline, I shall inquire about the bridegroom's character, and if he's not a gentleman likely to render happy the little girl who walked with me hand in hand over Nunnally Common, I will not officiate, so take care. The caution is useless. I am not going to be married. I shall live single, like your sister Margaret, Mr. Hall. Very well. You might do worse. Margaret is not unhappy. She has her books for a pleasure, and her brother for a care, and is content. If ever you want a home, if the day should come when Briarfield Rectory is yours no longer, come to Nunnally Vicarage. Should the old maid and bachelor be still living, they will make you tenderly welcome. These are your flowers. Now, said Caroline, who had kept the nosegay she had selected for him till this moment, you don't care for a bouquet, but you must give it to Margaret. Only, to be sentimental for once, keep that little forget-me-not, which is a wildflower I gathered from the grass. 
and, to be still more sentimental, let me take two or three of the blue blossoms and put them in my souvenir. And she took out a small book with enameled cover and silver clasp, wherein, having opened it, she inserted the flowers, writing round them in pencil, to be kept for the sake of the Reverend Cyril Hall, my friend, May 18. The Reverend Cyril Hall, on his part, also placed a spring in safety between the leaves of a pocket testament. He only wrote in the margin, Caroline. Now, said he, smiling, I trust we are romantic enough. Miss Kildar, he continued, the curates, by the by, during this conversation, were too much occupied with their own jokes to notice what passed at the other end of the table. I hope you are laughing at this trait of exultation in the old gray-haired vicar, but the fact is, I am so used to comply with the request of this young friend of yours, I don't know how to refuse her when she tells me to do anything. You would say it is not much in my way to traffic with flowers and forget-me-nots, but you see, when requested to be sentimental, I am obedient. He is naturally rather sentimental, remarked Caroline. Margaret told me so, and I know what pleases him. An innocence by which phrase I mean comparative innocence, for in his sight I am well aware, none are pure. What to our human perceptions looks spotless as we fancy angels is to him but frailty, needing the blood of his son to cleanse and the strength of his spirit to sustain. Let us each and all cherish humility, and we may well do it when we look into our hearts and see there temptations, inconsistencies, propensities, even we blush to recognize. And it is not youth, nor good looks, nor grace, nor any gentle outside charm which makes either beauty or goodness in God's eyes. Young ladies, when your mirror or men's tongues flatter you, I, as you, my young friends, that you should be good and happy. Yes, that is one of my greatest pleasures. May God long preserve to you the blessings of peace have ever painterized as fairer and better than either of you. She is indeed, he added after a pause. She is indeed. You young things, wrapped up in yourselves and in your earthly hopes, scarcely live as Christ lived. Perhaps you cannot do it yet, while existence is so sweet and earth so smiling to you. It would be too much to expect. She, with meek heart and due reverence, treads closer to her Redeemer's steps. Here the harsh voice of Don broke in on mild tones of Mr. Hall. Ahem he began, clearing his throat, evidently for a speech of some importance. Ahem. Miss Kildar, your attention an instant, if you please. Well, said Shirley nonchalantly, what is it? I listen. All of me is ear that is not I. I hope part of you is hand also, returned Don in his vulgarly presumptuous. Remember that, in the sight of her maker, Marianne Ainsley, a woman whom neither glass nor lips in familiar style, and part purse. It is to the hand and purse I propose to appeal. I came here this morning with a view to beg of you. You should have gone to Mrs. Gill. She is my almoner. To beg of you a subscription to a school, I and Dr. Boltby intend to erect one in the hamlet of Ecclefig, which is under our vicarage of Winbury. The Baptists have got possession of it. They have a chapel there, and we want to dispute the ground. But I have nothing to do with Ecclefig. I possess no property there. What does that signify? You're a churchwoman, ain't you? Admirable creature, muttered Shirley under her breath. Exquisite address. Fine style. What raptures he excites in me. Then aloud, I am a churchwoman, certainly. Then you can't refuse to contribute in this case. The population of Ecclefig are a parcel of brutes. We want to civilize them. Who is to be the missionary? Myself, probably. You won't fail through lack of sympathy with your flock. I hope not. I expect success. But we must have money. There is the paper. Pray give a handsome sum. When asked for money, Shirley rarely held back. She put down her name for five pounds. In the many smaller sums she was giving constantly, it was as much as she could at present afford. Don looked at it, declared the subscription shabby, and clamorously demanded more. Miss Kildar flushed up with some indignation and more astonishment. After the three hundred pounds she had lately given, at present I shall give no more, said she. Not give more? Why, I expect you to head the list with a cool hundred. With your property, you should never put down a signature for less. She was silent. Reproach in return for bounty is misplaced. Bounty? Do you call five pounds bounty? I do, and bounty which, had I not given it to Dr. Boltby's intended school, of the erection of which I approve, and in no sort to his curate, in the South, went on Don, a lady with a thousand a year would be ashamed to give five pounds for a public object. Shirley, so rarely haughty, looked so now. Her slight frame became nerved, her distinguished face quickened with scorn. Strange remarks, said she, most inconsiderate and uncultivated. They would be scouted in the South. Shirley leaned forward on the table, her nostrils dilated a little, her taper fingers interlacing and compressing each other hard. Who seems ill-advised in his manner of applying for, or rather extorting, subscriptions. 
bounty, I repeat, which, but for this consideration, I should instantly reclaim. Don was thick-skinned. He did not feel all or half that the tone, air, and glance of the speaker expressed. He knew not on what ground he stood. Wretched place this Yorkshire is, he went on. I could never have formed an idea of the country had I not seen it. And the people, rich and poor, what a set. How coarse. The rich, pursued the infatuated and unconscious Don, are a parcel of misers, never living as a person with their incomes ought to live. You scarcely, you must excuse Mr. Don's pronunciation, readers, it was very choice. He considered it genteel and prided himself of his southern accent. Northern ears received the singular sensations as utterance of certain words. You scarcely ever seen a family where a proper carriage or a regular butler is kept. And as to the poor, just look at them when they come crowding about the church doors on the occasion of a marriage or a funeral, clattering clogs, the men in their shirt sleeves and wool comers aprons, the women in mob caps and bedgowns. They positively deserve that one should turn a mad cow in amongst them. There. You have reached the climax, said Shirley quietly. You have reached the climax, she repeated, turning her glowing glance towards him. You cannot go beyond it. And, she added with emphasis, you shall not in my house. Up she rose. Nobody could control her now, for she's exasperated. Straight she walked to her garden gates. Wide she flung them open. Walk through, she said austerely, and pretty quickly, and set foot on this pavement no more. Don was astounded. He had thought all the time he was showing himself off to high advantage as a lofty-souled person of the first ton. He imagined he was producing a crushing impression. Had he not expressed disdain of everything in Yorkshire, what more conclusive proof could be given than he was better than anything there? And yet here he was about to be turned like a dog out of a Yorkshire garden. Throughout their rabble ranks. Hee hee, what fun it would be! Where, under such circumstances, was the concatenation accordingly? Rid me of you instantly! Instantly! reiterated Shirley as he lingered. Madam, a clergyman! Turn out a clergyman! Off! Were you an archbishop, you have proved yourself no gentleman, and must go! Quick! She was quite resolved. There was no trifling with her. Besides, Tartar was again rising. He perceived symptoms of a commotion. He manifested a disposition to join in. There was evidently nothing for it but to go, and Don made his exodus, the heiress sweeping him a deep curtsy as she closed the gates on him. How dare the pompous priest abuse his flock! How dare the lisping cockney revile Yorkshire! was her sole observation on the circumstance as she returned to the table. Ere long, the little party broke up. Miss Kildar's ruffled and darkened brow, curled lip, and incensed eye gave no invitation to further social enjoyment. Okay. We, like I said last time, we are getting into the good stuff now. It is only getting better from here. Um, we have seen some pretty good stuff in these chapters. Obviously, it was only a couple, so, you know, we're not going to get the entire story, but we're we're almost halfway through the story now, and... We're definitely getting somewhere. We are seeing a lot of Shirley's demeanor. We are seeing a lot of her as a character, of her as a person, of uh, her character's character. Um, we're seeing more and more of her kind of, I think, really embracing this inward battle that she seems to have of both seeing herself as a very feminine entity, but then also seeing in herself a lot of these really masculine traits. And obviously she... Um, gives herself this kind of like manly persona, which uh, I think is more or less out of out of jest. I don't really think she's quite serious about it. Um, but I think it's also a really good way for her to have to, for her to kind of distance herself from this other person as she sees it. Because during this time, this would be a really difficult position to hold, you know. Men aren't used to having to look at women in the way they have to look at Shirley. They aren't used to having to pander to women like they do with her. Um, because normally women didn't hold that kind of position. They didn't have that kind of power. They didn't have that kind of money. Uh, so I think she is having to kind of wrangle with that in her own mind. And how does she kind of embrace both of these sides of herself? How does she kind of cope with the fact that people are always a little bit off towards her, whether it's women not approving or women not understanding her or men not approving or understanding her? She has never really quite 
able to be comfortable, um, except around Caroline, which I think is really sweet. And I'm glad that Caroline is really accepting Shirley and accepting her assistance and accepting her help and just letting her kind of guide guide her through all of the stuff that she's going through um, with Robert. I just think that he's he's just not a good guy. He makes bad choices. Um, he leads her on. He does all of this like stuff where he's like, oh my gosh, like I want to be around you. I want to be near you. I'm going to look at you all the time. I'm going to make you uncomfortable. I'm going to make you think that I'm like liking you. And then he is super cold. And I don't care that it's because he doesn't feel like he can be like a family man or whatever. I really do not care. Uh, it just doesn't matter to me. You know, it takes like zero dollars to be a nice person. And I'm not saying that he needed to pander to her if he's not interested in her or to like tell her that he's willing to do things he's not. But you can't inwardly and outwardly acknowledge that someone else is like into you. And then we see Robert being a little skeevy, a little suspicious. I, 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 I kind of don't like the guy. If I'm honest, if I'm honest with myself, if I'm honest with you, I don't really like the guy. Do I think that Caroline might end up with him? Yes, because that's how these stories can can go. Um, do I like him? No. Just do nothing. Like, he's not making himself more cold towards her. He's not being nicer, but, like, setting a firm boundary. He's being very wishy-washy. He's going back and forth, bouncing between the two extremes, and then being like, why does she not get it? Why is she so obsessed? We, Robert, shut up. Like... And she just kicks him out. I was like, good for you, girl. I wouldn't put up with that either. Like, she let him stay longer than I would have. Like, that's enough. Thank you. Next. Goodbye. Like, you can see yourself out. I'm not even going to open the gate for you. Like, figure it out yourself. Hope Tartar doesn't rip you to shreds. So, props to her. Um, but I hope this doesn't, like, taint her as a, a caring character going forward. I hope this only further motivates her to, like, give money to causes that she actually believes in and that are worthy to her. Um, and doesn't feel, like, pressured to give more uh, than she's willing to, but also doesn't feel like, you know what, it's not worth it. I'm not going to bother, like, giving money anymore. Like, they can all, like, eat grass. Like, <laughs> I hope that's not what ends up happening, but we will just have to wait and see what happens What happens next. What, uh, what thing Shirley is going to do next that is, like, wild and crazy, but we love her for it. And Caroline is getting to see this, like, strong feminine figure in her life for the first time like this one that she can actually look up to and like believes in I guess um so I'm very very excited to see where things go from here you don't have to like want to marry her she's resigned herself to the knowledge that she's not going to marry you and she even has come to the fact that she thinks that sh that Shirley is going to marry him and she's like that would really suck for me but it makes sense and like Shirley would be happy so, you know what? It is what it is. It's fine. Like, she's just, she just goes along with it. She's like, yep, this is okay. Like, it's going to really suck. Like, I'm going to lose, like, the two people that I care about the most in this world. But, like, they'll be happy together. And that's what matters. Like, Caroline is so giving. But she's not stupid. She knows, she knows how things are realistically. She's able to make pretty good inferences about people. It's just really frustrating that Robert is the character that he is. Maybe things will turn. I mean, he did surprise me by going to Mr. York and being like, this guy, I kind of blew him off because I was mad. But, you know, he doesn't deserve to 
he doesn't deserve to deal with that. So if you could find him somewhere to work, that would be swell. That'd be great. Um, so that was, that was nice of him. Um, I'm not saying that that like absolves him of all his guilt because that's just like uh, the bare minimum he could have done. But I do think that was important to recognize. But yeah, now we're seeing some some big moves from Shirley. She wants to become more responsible with her money. So she's making these changes and that makes um, Homie there think that he has some sort of like footing to demand more money than she's willing to give, not having any idea how she's spending her money. Another example of how he thinks that no matter how she's spending it, it can't be right because she's a woman. Thanks for listening. This has been chapters 13 through 15 of Shirley by Charlotte Bronte. Stay tuned for Thursday's episode where we look at chapters 16 through 20. 